0: Hi everyone, it's Sam here, producer and occasional presenter of the Pints of Science podcast. Back again for part three of our special four-part mini-series in collaboration with Aston University. In this episode, we're meeting Dr Eric Hill, senior lecturer and member of Aston University's Biosciences Research Group. Now, Eric does something pretty remarkable on a day-to-day basis. He 3D prints brains. Not the whole thing, but his team uses very sensitive 3D printers and stem cell technology to implant neurons and other brain cells in order to create working models of parts of the brain, which they use to study the cause and effects of early onset Alzheimer's and other pretty terrible degenerative conditions. It's an incredible technology which could have wide-reaching effects on diagnosis and scientific research in the years to come. We're also going to be talking about the incredible experience of growing your first beating heart cells in a dish and the future of stem cell therapies and possible treatments for everything from epilepsy to heart failure in years to come. If you're listening to this and you're maybe inspired to learn more about these scientists' fields or STEM courses in general, head to aston.ac.uk for more information. But right now, why not pour a drink of your choice and get ready for a pint of science with Dr Eric Hill. Hopefully a simple enough question. What do you do on a daily basis?
1: <laughs> so my lab is mainly interested in how to model the brain using human brain cells. So for a long time, uh, we weren't able to work with human brain tissue that was alive. Um, but using stem cells, we're able to generate different brain cell types that we can use to study different diseases. Um, and in particular, we're interested in things like Alzheimer's disease, Huntington's, schizophrenia, and seizures. So Within my lab, we have many different cell types that we're interested in producing. Uh, and the basis of all those is induced pluripotent stem cells.
0: Okay. And what was the stem cells?
1: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so we use as a base for our models uh, stem cells that are called induced pluripotent stem cells. Okay. And these are a special type of stem cell that were programmed, if you like, from a, a, a cell within the body. So we can take something like a skin cell from an adult and we can reprogram that using particular factors to become a stem cell that's like an embryonic cell that you would get within an embryo and from that particular type of stem cell uh, that would be able to form all the different cell types within the
0: body that's amazing and i guess well making a stem cell into a brain cell for example is is i guess one thing and that's been happening for a while but you take it a step further don't you and try and kind of model nervous systems and, and model bits of the human brains. How on earth do you start with that? Like, is, there a, is there a map
1: or? <laughs> Quite a while of like, people have been trying to develop, I guess, recipes to make different brain cells. So if you know the recipe, and a lot of that information comes from developmental studies, that you know which uh, molecules switch on at which particular time, that you can start to push the cell to become a particular cell type. And over the years, people have looked at different brain cell types and how they develop, and then formed recipes to make those particular cell types. Um, so you can make all different areas of the brain such as the cortex but within those areas we can make neurons which are excitatory and inhibitory but we can also make cells such as astrocytes and blood vessel cells as well so we can make all different cell types that are present in the brain we just need to know the the right recipe to do that
0: what is it that you're trying to build and and what is it used for i know we've said already to you're building kind of elements of structures of brains exactly what is it and and why (laughs) So so what's a
1: real challenge is there are many brain diseases, uh, such as Alzheimer's disease, a disease that we're interested in called Rett syndrome, that there are no drugs for, there are no cures for. And one of the reasons might be is that we don't have good models of the brain, uh, particularly human models. If if you imagine that your brain is kind of nicely kept within your skull, it's well protected, and, and you wouldn't want anyone taking any part of your brain out, scooping a bit out to study in the lab. Other organ systems, often you can take a bit of the tissue out and study it. Um, Particularly if someone's got a particular type of cancer, you can take that tissue away and study it in the lab and grow it in the lab. Whereas generally, people don't donate bits to their brain while they're still alive so often you might get a, a resection from someone who have might have a form of epilepsy to look at that epileptic tissue but there will be not very much a healthy border tissue around that uh, if someone's got a, a particular type of brain tumor that you'd have that removed but again you wouldn't want to remove healthy border tissue so mm-hmm. generally when people have got to study the human brain it's been when patients have died and donated their brain uh, and what that does, it gives us a nice snapshot of what happened to that person at the point that they died and what the tissue looked like, but it's not alive. And so we've had to rely on models such as animal models to be able to study these different systems.
0: What do you look for in, for example, studying Alzheimer's? What are you using these samples for?
1: So at the moment, what we're able to do is using these uh, induced prepotent stem cell technologies that you can take skin cells from a patient that has a, a form of Alzheimer's that they get early in their life. So most people tend to get Alzheimer's uh, after the age of 65, and we call those patients late onset. But some patients start to develop it in their 30s and 40s, and those are early onset patients that uh, typically have a mutation that they've inherited that causes their disease. And what we're able to do is take their skin cells and reprogram them back to stem cells. And when we turn them into brain cells, we can see that when we compare them to a healthy patient, they have particular traits that are associated with the disease. So in Alzheimer's disease, there are two proteins that are found to be associated with the disease in patients, uh, this amyloid beta protein and phosphorylated tau proteins. And we also see changes in those proteins in the cells from patients with the disease as well. And those changes occur quite early in those cells. So it's interesting that they mimic some of the features of the disease, but perhaps represent a much earlier stage. And so it's exciting for us that we can see those processes occurring live in living tissue, but then we can start to use those cells to work out what the mechanisms of disease are in those patients, but then start to also use that as a tool to screen new drugs against so that we can identify compounds that might alter the production of those proteins or the response to those proteins. And also, it means that we could potentially reduce animal use so that we can test these things in a, in a cell model first before they're ever tested in an animal model.
0: Uh, well, that's fascinating. I had no idea that that you're actually using tissue and stem cells from a patient who had uh, early onset Alzheimer's, for example, in the research, I just kind of assumed that you were doing tests on generic stem cells turned brain cells. I think what's
1: quite interesting is if we, if we take the stem cells, make the stem cells from patients who develop late onset. A lot of those cells don't necessarily develop the disease in the dish, and it's it might reflect the fact that late onset patients they develop their disease probably as a result of uh, their environment that they're in and their lifestyle uh, interacting with their genome, whereas in patients with a mutation. They're very likely to develop it, and so that their cells also do that as well.
0: Ah, And is there any chance in the future, or is there any research going on at the moment in kind of mimicking those environmental triggers for late onset Alzheimer's?
1: So, yeah, so working with other groups, we're also looking at things that cause stress to cells. So, things like oxidative stress uh, and metabolic changes, which are heavily associated with things such as Alzheimer's disease, to see how that affects those cells. Does it make them worse? What Changes in uh, the things that the cells release uh, that we can measure could those act as biomarkers for the disease? What changes do they cause to the cells, and how does that eventually lead to the point that someone develops Alzheimer's disease? Because it's possible that in most patients that develop it later in life, they may have had the disease developing in their midlife, and it's only when they're at the age of 65 that you start to see the symptoms. So maybe mm. 15, 20 years to develop that disease. And at what point? is the point that drugs will work in those patients before the brain cells die? What are those very earliest changes that occur uh, that we can model and start to develop drugs against?
0: Well, I was going to ask actually what you're you're hoping is going to be the state of play in the field in the next 10 to 15 years, because it sounds like there's Loads of really promising research coming out of this, and it's it's having some really positive net effect already. Where do you hope it's going to end up?
1: So I think developing models, these so-called lab-on-chip uh, type devices, where you you can have uh, some cortical brain cells, perhaps, uh, and have them on a, a chip that can uh, monitor their activity, that you can monitor what things are being released from the cells, and that you can really start to have a uh, Uh, a model system that you can interact with and test new compounds on and very quickly and if you could imagine the scale that you could do that on you could do thousands of tests very rapidly in multi-well plates that might have 300 different wells in them and you can imagine that you could wash lots of different drugs in one go onto those plates and so really hoping to speed up the whole drug discovery system.
0: Fantastic and in terms of what the research is useful for is, is it do you think I mean it might be hard to say going to be more in terms of uh, prevention, cure, diagnosis, prediction.
1: I think a mix of all
0: of them. What's
1: really interesting is that all the different stages of drug, drug discovery that you could use these cells so that you could have cells where you work out what molecules change in the cells and use that as a almost diagnostic to say these are potential markers of the disease. Uh, you could look for markers of disease and use those to see if, when you add a drug to the cells to those markers change. You could also look at the safety of the drug. There are a number of labs looking at, as you turn stem cells into brain cells and you add a particular drug that might cause a developmental problem, how does that drug interact with those cells and affect their development? So even safety pharmacology testing can be done in these systems as well.
0: Fantastic. That is amazing. And you talk on your website about it being, uh, or sorry, it mentions on the Aston Researcher portal that it's kind of a 3D printing type process that you use. How does that work on such a tiny level. So
1: what we're quite interested in is normally when we grow cells we grow them on plastic plates which are kind of two-dimensional structure and our brains have three-dimensional structures with lots of different cells connecting to each other in those three dimensions. So some of the new types of 3D printing allow us to generate tiny structures at this kind of nano or micron scale and so we're able to create scaffolds that cells grow on. But then there are other types of three D printing where we can actually print the cells within something like a gel um, to form different shapes that might resemble tissues that we're interested in producing.
0: How how new is this technology? Because that's not something I've heard of before with stem cell technology. That sounds incredible.
1: So, so some of this is quite recent. Um, it's it's basically using the standard 3D printing kind of idea that you can layer materials on top of each other. So it's taken that idea, but instead of using things like plastics, it uses biomaterials instead, so things like hydrogels that we can grow cells in, uh, kind of the environment that cells are used to growing in. The challenge is that cells like different types of materials, so it has to be a a material that you can print and so inject through something like a needle that won't kill the cells in that process, but also that the material is the right strength for the cells to grow in and different cells like different types of materials.
0: So do you kind of plant it down cell by cell or do you print off a a framework cells can then grow around, sort of like an animatronic stop motion claymation type thing?
1: Yeah, so, so more recently we've just published a paper looking at how you can print in materials that are set by light so if you have a a material a type of plastic that when you shine a particular wavelength of laser at them um, it will set that material solid and then you can wash away anything that wasn't set we're able to draw really tiny structures and it's like a little version of a a playground uh, kind of frame that children can climb on you could make something that that's a few microns across and then you can put cells onto that material and they'll grow uh, on those different bars that are connected to each other, you can also, on top of those structures, you can change the pattern of the surface. So you can make it rough or smooth. And um, one of the things is quite interesting is neurons really don't like sharp angles, and so they tend to move away from things like triangles. Um, so we can layer triangles on top of the surface or other shapes to really control which directions our cells grow in as well. So using that type of printing, we're able to make really refined surfaces, but. In that way it's almost described as two and a half d because the cells are still growing on top of something whereas if they're within a gel that we're printed then that's more of a true three dimensional printing method that the cells are actually grown within the structure
0: i had no idea that that was that that, that was possible that you could literally layer down well, I, had, I actually had no idea that neurons don't like triangles. Um, (laughs) And if there there was a subtitle for this episode, I think that'll be it.
1: (laughs) So so the mechanical uh, properties of the material is really important. So cells are always sensing the the environment around them. So if they're in a really stiff material, a neuron wouldn't move through that material. It wouldn't like to interact with it. Whereas if it was quite a soft material, that's the kind of strength that brain tissue is. Um, So that makes printing a real challenge. Um, if you can imagine something like bones quite stiff and bone stem cells like to be in that kind of environment that you could print something with the consistency of toothpaste that you could force through a needle and those cells would be very happy with that and you could layer that on top of itself. But with brain cells, they like real soft material. So it would be like trying to pr- print something like shower gel and you wouldn't be able to do that. So we have to start to bring different technologies together to hold that shape uh, while it starts to set and so that the whole thing doesn't collapse in on itself. And that's been a real challenge of trying to print this kind of soft tissue
0: so i guess it's almost i guess like trying to 3d print a a cake almost (laughs) is that is that a terrible analogy (laughs) i think it's it's, just the idea that
1: these multiple materials you're putting on top of each other with different things in each layer um and the brain as such as the cortex is a very layered structure and so you have to have different properties of the different layers that you bring together that could almost be like a cake we just don't get to eat it at the end
0: (laughs) and how big are these structures that you're that you're growing are you growing this might sound like a stupid question, maybe it's not. Are you growing whole sections of brain? Are you growing whole nervous systems? What kind of scale are we talking here? So these would just
1: be maybe a few hundred micrometers across. So very small structures, very small networks, uh, not very complicated One of the problems with 3D printing of tissues or even when people have made what are called brain organoids, where they allow the stem cells to form aggregates and then they start to turn into the brain cells in those aggregates and then start to form tissue-like structures um, is that they can only get so big before the diffusion of oxygen and nutrients becomes a problem. And that's where some people have started to develop blood vessels or fibres within those structures to, to get nutrients into the centre and and brain is very hungry it uses a lot of your energy so if you're trying to grow something that's bigger than the i guess the environment allows that you need to be able to get waste out and oxygen and nutrients into that system
0: you say there are other teams around the world who are working on 3d printing blood vessels and that kind of thing are you working collaboratively with them to build bigger and and better structures so the great thing about this area is is that you
1: have to work with other types of scientists so I'm a cell and molecular biologist so I know lots about stem cells and molecular biology and turning those cells into brain cells but then I don't work with engineering materials, surface chemistry and physics and and photonics and all of those kind of things so then we have to work with other groups in other universities around the world to bring all these different ideas together and so you can bring people who are very good at working with making blood vessels and designing new materials and creating structures, people who design uh, the, the machine, the actual three printer that we can use within these cells and even the software to generate these shapes and control the speed at which the cells are printed are all really important so it it brings lots of different areas together which is quite exciting uh, to be able to uh, work with so many different types of scientists.
0: Yeah absolutely and do you do you work quite collaboratively and and directly with them or do you kind of someone does some new research develop a better for example uh, 3D printing material and then you take that on and you use it in your research or are you working together as one around the world? So it's,
1: it's a bit of both so we we work with some particular groups that have particular um, areas of interest that align with what we're doing but also when people have published research that's relevant to what we're doing we can incorporate those ideas into our model systems that we're trying to build as well.
0: Fantastic and I meant to ask actually earlier what do the the structures that you're growing what if you had to describe them to the to the layman what do they actually look like if you look at them through a microscope so
1: the cells Uh, When they're growing uh, under their own control and and we just feed them different things, um, they start to form very early on what we call cortical rosettes. And they look a little bit like a flower. And from those rosettes, what we see is that the the cells start to migrate out of them. They travel out of the center of that rosette structure and start to form all the different layers that you might see in in a system such as a cortex. Um, And so they can do that on their own if they have the right environment around them. What we'd like to try and do is is mimic that in the way that we layer our tissues on top of each other to try and mimic those structures. But the cells under the right conditions do have the capacity to do it themselves.
0: Okay. So they look almost like like tiny little roses, almost like little plants. Yeah. Fantastic.
1: And if you you look at the brain organoids, when you slice them open and look inside them, you can see cortical-like structures forming within them. So it's it's quite interesting that the cells, once they're in 3D, start to recognise where they are in space and start to organise themselves in a particular
0: pattern. That is amazing. And how long does this take? Well, how long does the 3D printing process take and then how long after that do you have a a working sample?
1: This is a difficult thing with working with the human cells. So we can turn uh, stem cells into brain stem cells in about a month and we can start to work with those. Over the period of about another month we can start to turn those into cells like neurons. The problem is, is that they're not very mature and The real uh, feature of a neuron is that it's functional. So it's capable of the electrical activity that we, Mm. I guess, associate with brain cells. And that can take a lot longer. So we've kept cells for up to two years in culture to watch how they mature over time. Um, typically, we can see a lot of uh, functional activity in these cells that are around 50 days old, but we can keep them much longer uh, and see much bigger changes in how their electrical activity matures over time and the networks that they form.
0: So about as fast as normal 3D printing then. It's, it's a pretty <laughs> slow process. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I think the printing itself is pretty quick. It's just the, the maturation of the cells within the structure once you've made it that takes a lot longer.
0: It, I'm, p- I'm putting this wrongly, I know, but how long does it then take to, to give those cells Alzheimer's? <laughs>
1: (laughs) What's really interesting about these cells is that if we take, say, the patients that develop it early in life uh, and we start to turn their stem cells into brain cells, even at that early phase within 30 to 60 days of them turning from a stem cell into a neuron, we start to see proteins such as amyloid building up at high levels within the cells. So already there are changes in those uh, patient cells as early as 60 days.
0: Oh, that's amazing. How long has this field been kind of Exists, extant, <laughs> how long has the field existed? I think for the
1: induced pluripotent
0: stem cells,
1: uh, from around about 2007, when the, the, the discovery of how to make these cells came about, it's really exploded from there. The, the ability to take cells from different patients, once scientists were able to take cells such as skin cells and turn them into stem cells, people then very quickly realised that if you took them from people with different genetic backgrounds, you could start to model different diseases. And so the field really exploded from there. Uh, to be able to do that the idea of turning stem cells into neurons has been going on for a lot longer and that's been happening for decades and people have worked out a lot of the recipes already to do that with either embryonic stem cells or mouse embryonic stem cells because they've been People have been culturing those uh, for decades, uh, particularly since the 80s, and being able to keep those stem cells as stem cells, and then begin to turn them into different cell types.
0: Uh, and that's really what made stem cell research properly viable, isn't it? Is the ability to reverse engineer cells rather than having to kind of take embryonic ones from from source, if you like.
1: I think that's definitely made a difference. There are a lot of people that have real ethical concerns about destroying embryos to extract the embryonic stem cells to use them in research Mm -hmm. and and even if that research is helping lots of people some people really don't like the idea of doing that and some organizations won't fund that type of research Uh, and for a long time in the US making new embryonic stem cell lines wasn't allowed with kind of government-sponsored research activities.
0: Is that still a problem, or has the field now largely switched over to reverse engineering cells?
1: A lot of labs still work with embryonic stem cells, um, but a lot of labs around the world have started to work with iPSCs because they avoid those ethical issues. What's interesting is even though iPSCs look very much like embryonic stem cells, they're not exactly the same. Um, So a lot of people are interested to know what are the differences when you reprogram a cell. Its memory is not completely wiped of what it was uh, necessarily, uh, whereas embryonic stem cells are a much purer form. So people are interested in what the differences are between the different cell types.
0: And how did you yourself get into this as a field?
1: So I think when I was doing my undergraduate degree, so I guess um, around about 97 people just be able to start culturing human uh, embryonic stem cells. And I think it was a, a big explosion of interest in the press uh, that people were starting to be able to do that and all the different diseases that, that would cure. So I think that initially sparked my interest. And then during my PhD, one of the assays that we were developing needed to use embryonic stem cells to see if a particular protein would stop them turning into different cell types. And, and during that work, some of those stem cells turned into things such as heart cells, which began to beat in the dish uh, or turn into things that looked like neurons or fat cells. And that just really excited me that this cell had so much potential to turn into all these different cell types and just what you could use those for. So once I'd finished my PhD, I was really interested in working with stem cells for my future career. And I was lucky enough to uh, get a job uh, postdoctoral research scientist turning stem cells into brain cells, using 3D models to see if they affected brain cell development. There are a lot of drugs, we describe them as teratogens uh, that have developmental effects. I think thalidomide would be a good example of that, Mm. where we need to test lots of compounds rapidly to see if they have an effect, particularly on uh, tissues such as the brain. And so my, my early research project was to try to develop a model like that. And as technology improved and iPSCs were developed, we switched across to using iPSC models. And I became more interested in diseases like Alzheimer's, where we don't don't really understand the very early changes that occur in the brain that cause that disease. And there are no treatments for that disease either.
0: That must have been an incredible experience the first time that you you saw by adding a certain chemical compound to a cell, you could turn it into a beating heart cell. That must be really quite awe-inspiring when you see it.
1: I think because when you're doing cell culture, because often cells move around so slowly, you don't notice it when you're looking down the microscope at them. But when cells turn into a heart cell, while you're looking down the microscope, you can actually physically see it beating in real time. And to see a cell that was a different size and a different shape turn into a sheet that starts to beat as a, sh- a whole sheet of like uh, heart cells, it's just really exciting to think that, that they've completely changed into something different uh, just in a number of days. It, it, was, it was amazing to see it
0: that is absolutely incredible and have you ever experienced yourself or or have there ever been any really kind of unexpected discoveries in in that area that you know people tried adding something <laughs> to some stem cells and something ridiculous or amazing or just unexpected happened? I think
1: sometimes sometimes these things happen by accident uh, and they just happen to see that their cells have turned into something unexpected whereas often people are trying to push their cells into different directions to make a particular cell type and uh, I don't know if you've heard much about genome editing and CRISPR technology mm, uh, but yes, combining yes. stem cells, (IPSCs) with CRISPR and genome editing that you can actually um, correct mutations in cells so you could take the patient cells the mutation and put uh, cells back into that patient. Or we can, if we want to model different diseases, we can knock in a mutation into a healthy patient cells to see how that one particular mutation causes an effect on the cells. So I think these two technologies combined are going to be very powerful for disease modelling.
0: Fantastic. And uh, CRISPR, just to clarify, is uh, a technology where kind of certain genes are taken out of a genome, aren't they? And, or put into a genome. It's kind of spliced and reassembled is that right
1: yeah you can pretty much do different things like uh, copy cut paste bits of dna you can knock genes out by just damaging that gene so it can't be read by the cell's machinery or you can cut a piece of dna out and replace it with another piece of dna uh, within the cell very specifically and that technology is improving all the time to make it as accurate and safe
0: as possible Fantastic. And is that something that you use yourself in your research, in your lab? Yeah, so we've got a few
1: projects to, in some, knock in mutations into cells to see how they cause a a change in the the disease state of that cell. Um, But in other maybe more exciting projects, it's knocking in uh, different genes that allow us to turn the cells different colours, for instance. Uh, so we could have a neuron that's one colour and astrocytes that that's another. Uh, we can knock in proteins from things like jellyfish or algae, which when we shine a light at our cells, it activates them and we can uh, get them to generate electrical activity once we flash the light at a particular cell. Um, so we can add yeah. all different types of genes into these cells to interact with them using just imaging, really, and all optical approach. We can both excite and image our cells at the same time.
0: Fantastic. So you could uh, create a version of yourself that will charge your phone.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They they are very hungry cells.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Be your own solar panel. Fantastic.
1: Uh, For us, we've been quite interested in and I'll have been making different brain cell types, so trying different recipes to make different cell types and then uh, bringing those cell types together to see how they interact a lot of the research has been focused on purely on neurons in the field for quite a long time, and we're quite interested in how cell types like astrocytes and microglia interact with the neurons because the neurons can't do their job on their own. Um, and so we need astrocytes there to really see what's going on. And what's been exciting recently for us in the lab is to, to see uh, in real time that interaction between neurons and astrocytes using different types of imaging and uh, new molecular biology techniques where we can control the activity of our cells with light and start to also image the the activity of the cells uh, using fluorescence microscopy. So in real time, we're watching these cells communicate with each other.
0: That is amazing. And is that what you're research now is going to concentrate on for the next kind of few years? Uh, definitely. Uh, First it's really important that
1: we make cells that look like neurons, they make the proteins that are imported in neurons and in particular different types of neurons and things like astrocytes but ultimately you, we can't say that it's a real neuron unless it functions like a neuron. So that kind mm. of electrical activity, building networks that communicate and change over time that we might be able to interact with and look at things such as memory uh, but also see that influencer cells like astrocytes. Are those processes and so everything ultimately you hopefully imagine would affect the function of the brain cell so in Alzheimer's disease you can see that the disease affects the function of the brain so we're interested to see in all these different disease processes how it ultimately affects function
0: and that is uh, that must be again an incredible experience to watch something that you've created become not not a living machine but a functioning biological machine that must be yeah, really it, quite something. It's,
1: it's really exciting to be able to watch that happen or record that from happening. Uh, if we use electrodes, we have computer-type chips called multi-electrode arrays that we can grow these cells on and you can watch the activity on those cells. Uh, we work with electrophysiologists who patch clamp those cells and can record the electrical activity. And then we can use particular dyes within the cell that fluoresce every time the cell releases something like calcium um, so we can watch the activity. And just seeing cells communicating... A recent project that we've looked at was trying to induce the cells to have a seizure-like event and so we could start to look at epilepsy and how we could model things like epilepsy and also look at how certain drugs that are targeted at the brain cause a seizure. And so we could also use this as a screen for seizure and to to watch our cells having a seizure. And it was almost like uh, seeing a light bulb being switched on and off in a culture dish and watching our cells do that to know that we've controlled that and we've induced that is, is quite an exciting thing to be able to do.
0: Yeah, that is that is amazing. <laughs> Uh, and just out of interest, what was your undergrad and PhD in? My undergrad was uh, applied in human biology uh, many moons ago,
1: and then my PhD was in cell and molecular biology. And I was focused on a protein called leukemia inhibitory factor. And this factor is one of the early factors that people could add to tissue culture media that would Uh, make us an embryonic stem cell, so a mouse embryonic stem cell, stay in that state where they can turn into all the different cell types in the body. And if you take that leukemia and inhibitor factor away, they start to differentiate and turn into different cell types. So my PhD was looking at how that protein is released from the cell and how it interacts with different cell types.
0: Fantastic. And just finally, and this is a a very kind of pop science question, but do you think research like this and... Stem cell therapies will eventually be able to reverse the effects of Alzheimer's and even reverse the effects of aging in general and kind of, uh, you know, reverse cell degradation.
1: I think cell based therapies. Uh, are becoming more and more interesting over time safety is always a big consideration but I think Mm. uh, the idea of cell-based therapies or biological therapies replacing drugs is quite interesting so it could be that we have a stem cell that we turn into uh, maybe a heart cell and we can put that heart cell back into a patient to Uh, fix uh, a damaged heart after a heart attack. We could maybe grow organ-like structures and put those into the body. But also cells produce proteins. uh, They secrete things. that are actually also useful. And a lot of work is now going on to look at uh, what's secreted from stem cells, which also seems to encourage repair. There's a safety issue with things like induced pluripotent stem cells. That if you put those straight into a person, they probably cause lots of tumors, uh, tumors that we call teratomas that have lots of different tissues yes, in yeah. them. So you would never want to put an IPSE cell into a patient. But if you could make a tissue, and a cell that doesn't divide very much anymore, that you could safely put into the patient because you've potentially taken that cell from that patient. There's less risk of rejection of that tissue. So I think those are all very exciting areas. And these advanced therapeutics are probably where the future of medicine is, is going to go to. Whether we can cure all diseases, probably not. Alzheimer's at late stages might be difficult to treat by just replacing brain cells. Uh, if you've lost those particular brain cell networks mm. but maybe early on if you could support the cells and stop them dying in the first place that might be a better approach but then if you've got diseases like parkinsons where there's a particular pathway that's damaged and you could replace the cells in that pathway um, or a stroke those might be more uh, possible treatments by replacing those actual brain cells but some diseases we might not be able to do that
0: no but even so being able to you know replace damaged pathways for parkinsons disease and similar that would be huge, wouldn't it? That would be absolutely incredible. Obviously, it's going to be very difficult, but do you, if you had to put a time frame on it, when do you think that we'd be able to start seeing treatments like that being applied to human patients? So at the moment, there are
1: a number of clinical trials using um, stem cell therapies uh, in different diseases like stroke and Parkinson's. Some are using iPSCs in retinal diseases in Japan at the moment, and those are progressing. There are a number of different trials using what we call mesenchymal stem cells, which are a type of stem cell you can take from tissues such as fat tissue uh, or bone marrow and use those as therapies. And so there's a huge number of trials using those mesenchymal stem cells at the moment as regenerative therapies. And so they're at different stages of progression. I think the issue is always safety. Um, Do they work better than standard drug? Uh, But also cost. And scale. How do you grow these things at bulk? How do you scale up production of cells to the hundreds of liters, thousands of liters of capacity and still maintain that that quality control over your product so that every cell is exactly the same before you put them into the patient? So I think there are a number of challenges, but there are trials, at least on the small scale, going on at the moment.
0: As you were saying, unless I've misunderstood, a lot of those cells have to be specific to the patient in the first place. (laughs) So you have to a vat of cells for that one patient, I guess.
1: Potentially. um, Some areas of research are looking at off-the-shelf cell lines where they maybe manipulated them genetically somehow or they've been tissue matched um, I think there's a big effort in Japan with iPSC cells at the moment to see how many different tissue types that you would need to have represented by your iPSC cell bank so that you could uh, donate tissue to almost all patients from a, a relatively small cell bank of maybe something like 30 different patient uh, tissue types.
0: Okay would that kind of almost be like a blood bank type scenario? No
1: I think definitely and I guess we work on different diseases and I think it's interesting that at different stages with either older age diseases like Alzheimer's or even younger onset diseases like schizophrenia and uh, Rett syndrome, we're able to model all of those as long as we're able to get hold of the initial patient tissue. Thankfully for us, there are no lots of different cell banks around the world where we can purchase either the skin cells or the induced pluripotent stem cells that have already been produced from different patients to generate the tissue that we can then use in our models. And it might also speed up treatment. If you imagine someone's had a heart attack and they need cells quite quickly and you had to wait to reprogram themselves, check that they were reprogrammed, expand them, turn them into heart cells and freeze them, that would take months to years to do that. Whereas if you had a a cell type that you could buy off the shelf that was already tissue-matched that patient, then everything becomes a lot faster to be able to do that for the patient and and, and less expensive.
0: Fantastic. And do you think... In terms of kind of seeing this publicly available as a therapy, would you say 15 years, 10 years?
1: Possibly. There are already stem cell treatments that are already available. If you think of bone marrow transplants, that's the oldest stem cell transplant with a, a long history of safe use. Um, so oh. they're already out there, um, and then a new one's being developed all the time. Uh, in the last few years, uh, some limbal stem cell treatment for treating eye damage have uh, been released within the EU. Um, so some of these treatments are already there. So it just depends on uh, the different diseases and, and, and testing whether these cells actually cause any improvement over the standard treatment.
0: Oh, exciting times, Eric! That's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for that. That's brilliant. No, no problem. Absolutely incredible. Now, I fancy myself as a bit of a 3D printing fan, but that takes it to a whole new level, and I don't think I'll be helping fight diseases anytime soon. So, thank you very much indeed, Eric. If you're inspired to learn more about this field, Aston offer an MSc in Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine, which is led by Eric Hill himself. You can find more information about this and other STEM courses at aston.ac.uk. You can also visit www.pintofscience.co.uk for more information on the podcast and this mini-series. And we'll be back very soon with part four.